And now, uh, as we get into our text, if you would, open your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to Daniel in the fourth chapter. And if you do not have them, it's okay, because we have it on the screen. And I originally had told Matt, I didn't think I was going to read the whole passage, um, but the more I studied, the more I read, uh, the more I was uh, blessed by, the, by this passage, this chapter in Daniel, uh, the more I just began to realize that that I, I really can't think of a good reason not to read the entire text together as a church uh, because we believe that, that the Word of God has power and that it, uh, in and of itself, when it is sent forth, does not return void. And so, uh, so that I don't provide, d- deprive, of, deprive us of a blessing, we are going to all uh, go through this together. I will read, if you would, follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen. Daniel chapter, chapter 4, starting in 1 through the end of the chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed, The fancies of the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought to me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods... And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven. And when and it was visible to the end of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots on the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. 
The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered the king, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which there was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, that the, that who gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump, of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till, the, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. <clears throat> At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, Why have you, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your word. 
God, I thank you that you have given it to us to help us understand, to help us see, Lord, even in these Old Testament passages that we sometimes are confused by, sometimes find strange, Lord, there is so much truth about who you are revealed in these texts. God, as I, as I preach today, may you, uh, Lord, take away any falsehood that I may say. May you help people forget that and remember only truth. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit go forth today uh, and do the work that uh, I nor any other preacher can do, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So a few years ago, <clears throat> there was a, um, a young man by the name of O.J. Mayo. And O.J. Mayo was a really, really good high school basketball player. I mean, really good. He was like breaking all kinds of records uh, for high school basketball. He was destroying everybody he played. I mean, he was like, as far as high school basketball players goes, he was amazing, like unstoppable. And Michael Jordan, who we all know to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time, I say one of, Josh, uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, at least, um, has a, a camp that he puts on uh, for some of the best basketball players in, the high, in high school. Uh, and he puts the camp on every year, and O.J. Mayo, being the best high school basketball player, was invited by Michael Jordan to come to this camp and, and play and learn to get better and, and improve. And while he was there, they would play scrimmage games. They would uh, all divide up teams, play pickup games, and Michael Jordan would get out on the court and play with these high school players. Now, uh, Michael Jordan's already pretty old by this time when O.J. Mayo comes along, because this was just a few years ago. Uh, and so he's already up in like his uh, 50s. You know, he's getting up there, uh, I think. He's either 40s or 50s. Either way, he wasn't like young at all. Uh, not that 40 is old, but... Uh, <laughs> But he was way older than these high school basketball players who are young, in shape, uh, can run for, forever and ever and ever. But Michael Jordan would get out there and play with them. And, and he usually hit whatever shots he, he decided to hit. And, you know, he would take some and he'd pass. You know, he, he didn't play like the Michael Jordan that we saw in the NBA. But he would get out there and he'd play. And, you know, people were usually still pretty impressed. Well, O.J. Mayo is out there playing. And he's on the opposite team as Michael Jordan. And he's pretty good. And he's scoring some. And... And uh, his team pulls out a win against Michael Jordan's team, you know, him with a bunch of other high schoolers. And, and, uh, and so he's getting pretty, pretty arrogant right now, pretty prideful. And so he starts talking some trash to Michael Jordan. He starts saying, you can't guard me, and, and I'm going to win. And, I mean, all this stuff, just talking some serious trash to Michael Jordan, uh, the guy that, like, makes shoes now. And, and that guy, you know, that have the guy dunking the basketball, that's him, like, that you see on the pictures and things like that. He starts talking trash to Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan takes it for a while. He kind of puts up with it, and he keeps on playing. You know, he scores on him a few times, you know, trying to kind of get him to stop, and, and he won't stop. O.J. Mayo still is just talking trash. Finally, after they finish the game, Michael Jordan says, all right, I need all the cameras out. I need everybody to clear the gym except for these teams. And he says, now it's a lesson. And according to myth and legend, uh, that was, uh, that, at that time, Michael Jordan just completely went off, and he decided he was going to just teach this kid a lesson, this young punk, O.J. Mayo, who thought he was as good as Michael Jordan and that Michael Jordan couldn't, couldn't handle him, he decided he was going to teach him a lesson and humble him a little bit. And that's exactly what he did, according to everyone that was there, is that he completely dominated. And when he was done, he turned to O.J. Mayo. He said, you may be the best high school basketball player in the country, but I'm the greatest of all time. And O.J. Mayo, you know, in an interview, talked about that. He talked about how it was, you know, kind of humbling a little bit, and, and that's exactly what it was. It was he was so filled with, with pride and arrogance that, uh, that he was destined to be humbled eventually, especially against 
the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. This is a very similar situation to what we see here in our text uh, with Nebuchadnezzar and his pride. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this text in, in and of itself here as it's positioned in Daniel is a really interesting text and it's kind of different than, than the rest of what we see in Daniel because as you, you notice as we start that, that it's not speaking from the perspective of Daniel. In fact, it is from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar who is writing this uh, this what seems like some sort of decree or, or letter or proclamation to the nations of the world, to all the nations, people, and tongues, as he says in the beginning. What is, it's such a unique sort of layout that we see here in Daniel of this passage. It actually, this chapter, chapter 4 in Daniel, looks very similar to what we see in a lot of the New Testament epistles because it opens with a, with a doxology, a praise to God, and, and then ends up closing with, with another doxology. It's like it bookends it. Uh, which you don't typically see throughout the Old Testament, except for in like the Psalms and things like that. But you do see regularly in the, the New Testament epistles. Uh, so it's a very unique book, and, and it, it's especially unique because of the fact that it's written in this king's words, in Nebuchadnezzar's words. It's this him writing this to the nations of the earth, to the peoples of the earth, in order to, to tell them of what has happened to him. And as we start out, we see the beginning, uh, what, is, what is happening. We see... King Nebuchadnezzar, as he is uh, uh, talking about him being filled with pride, he talks about uh, he was prospering in his palace and, and he was at ease in his house. What we see at the beginning of this chapter is a man who is in his palace and has virtually no worries in the world. He has wealth, he has power, he has respect, and honestly, no enemies are bold enough to attack him. And in fact, history tells us that the, the walls in Babylon at this time were so big, so massive, such a, a feat that two chariots pulled by four horses could pass each other on the top of this wall. That's how, that's how big the wall was. That's how secure Babylon was. And, and this king is, is just so filled with pride over what he has done. And it says that at the beginning of, the, of his letter, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and, and prospering in my palace because he had nothing to fear. Nobody was going to attack him. He had all the power in the world. He had all the prestige. He had all the respect and, and all the wealth he could possibly imagine. But his peace is quickly disturbed by this dream that he has. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we see this, this giant tree. He sees this giant tree that, that reaches up to the heavens, it says. It's so big. It's, it's reminiscent of, of the description of the Tower of Babel, how it, it reached to the heavens. And that's the way this tree is described. It's huge. It's so big that it reaches up into the heavens that all these birds come and they, they nest in the tree. And all the beasts of the field find shade under the tree and are fed by the tree. And, and this is just a, a massive, huge tree like no other tree has ever been before. It says that it can be seen from, from all over the earth. It stands so tall and reaches so high to the heavens that it can be seen from everywhere. And then he sees the, the watcher that comes down, says the, the holy ones that come and give this decree. And these holy ones come down and, and what we know to be angels come and, and give a decree from God and say that the tree is to be cut down, that its branches are to be cut off and that all the animals will be scattered and there will be nothing left of this giant, enormous, massive tree, but a stump in the ground guarded by bronze. And this is what we see in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And, and Nebuchadnezzar rightly understands this dream to be something bad because it, it causes him all this 
this dismay. He says, as I lay in my bed, the, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. He recognizes that this is not a good dream. This is not something that is, that is to his advantage. This is not something that excites him at all, but rather terrifies him. And notice in verse 27 that Daniel tells the king something really, really important about his dream. And once he interprets his dream, Daniel in 27 tells him that this dream does not necessarily have to be what happens. He tells him the, the right interpretation of his dream. He says that, that this tree, in fact, O Nebuchadnezzar, is you. And that because of your pride, because of the way you have been swelled up, and you are so massive, but God has put you in this place to where you are above all other things, that you stand like this tree, uh, a king above all other kings. And the Lord has put you there, and you have swelled up with pride, and now the Lord is going to bring you down and is going to humble you. And Daniel gives this description, but he goes on to say in verse 27, that this doesn't have to be what happens, but he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel tells him correctly that, that look, Nebuchadnezzar, like this is the judgment that the Lord has decreed will come upon you, but but there is still hope if you, if you repent, if you turn to Christ, if you submit to Him, if you worship Him and, and obey His commands and live righteously and, and treat the oppressed well as, as one who submits to Christ should do, that there is hope for you and you may still have prosperity. And this is true of, of each and every one of us today. There is a judgment coming for, for all the peoples of the earth because each and every one of us, like Nebuchadnezzar, like we talked about last week, is filled with pride. Every single one of us has pride in our hearts and that, that needs to be dealt with. That needs to be dealt with and that we need to humble ourselves before God. And the same thing that's true for Nebuchadnezzar is true for us. That a judgment is coming upon each and every human being, but that that doesn't have to be the case. That if we submit ourselves to Christ, if we turn to Him, worship Him as God, and worship Him through obedience, but the same thing is true for us, that we can be saved from the judgment that is to come. Yet the king doesn't repent. And in verses 28 through 30, we see exactly what comes to pass because of it. We see Nebuchadnezzar, just as described in the description of what's to come to him in his dream, we see Nebuchadnezzar completely and totally humiliated. We see him brought low. And when we see him brought low, we don't just see him brought down to, to the status of those whom he is over. We don't see him brought down to the status of just a normal man, no longer a king. No, in fact, we see the Lord strip him of the very reason that separates humanity from the animals. He is humbled so low. We see correctly in his humiliation the reminder of the biblical truth that's found in Matthew 23, 12, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There is a clear pattern that we see all throughout Scripture, that we see through the Old Testament, that we see through the New Testament, of humiliation before exaltation. As we think about Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and, and his humiliation that he experienced, let's contrast that to, to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. If you know that passage, it talks about Jesus who humbled himself, took on the form of man, took on the form of a servant, even humbling himself to the point of death on a cross for our sake. What a difference that is from what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see, 
We see a mere man in Jesus Christ. We see an eternal God. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see a man who is sinful. In Jesus, we see one who is sinless. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see a man who is merciless. In Jesus Christ, we see one who is merciful. Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself while Jesus chose to humble himself. Nebuchadnezzar aspired sovereignty. And Jesus aspired servanthood. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself and was humbled by, humbled by God. Jesus humbled himself and was exalted by God. What we see in both of these passages is a clear pattern of humiliation before exaltation. In both of these situations, there's this common pattern. The humility that Nebuchadnezzar experienced, like I said, went far beyond just stripping him of his title, stripping him of his position, but rather stripping him of his rationality and drove him away from humanity. There's an order that's always true in the kingdom of God, and that's that humility will always come before exaltation. The question is whether or not we will be humbled, or whether we will humble ourselves before a holy God, or whether or not a holy God will humble us. At the end of the passage in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice in this passage it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And John MacArthur makes it clear in, in his commentary on Philippians that every single human being will proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and will confess Him as Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question is whether or not that will be out of humble submission to that holy God or whether or not it will be that they were brought to their knees by God's judgment. We go on to see in verses 34 through 37 that... Nebuchadnezzar, after his humiliation, is indeed restored and exalted. He's restored to his position uh, as king. And not only is he restored, but he says that the Lord added even more to him. Well, I want you to think about a, a gentleman by the name of Chuck Colson. If you're familiar with recent history, American history, or, or um, are familiar with the Watergate scandal or anything, you might recognize the name Chuck Colson. Uh, because Chuck Colson was a man who was a part of the president's special counsel, uh, President Nixon's special counsel. This man climbed the ladder of success. He was a guy who went from, from, I mean, just like anyone else, to a man who had the ear of the president of the United States. He found himself able to walk in and out of the office of the president. And the president actually wanted his advice and asked him for his advice. And then as he talks about this experience that he had, Chuck Colson, he says that, that his, he just filled with pride and arrogance at the fact that the president of the United States cared about what, what he had to say and that he had the ear of the president. He could walk into the president's office as he willed, as he wanted to. But then when the Watergate scandal broke, he was found out to be a criminal. He was found out to be engaging in all sorts of criminal activity, and he was prosecuted and ended up going to prison for his actions. And in prison, he found himself so humiliated, so filled with shame, so, brought so low that in his time of, of despair and, and 
humiliation. He had no choice but to cry out to God. And he ended up getting saved while he was in prison. And to this day, Chuck Colson would say that that was the most, even though it was the worst thing that ever happened to him in his life, it was in fact the greatest thing that he ever experienced in his life. Because of that humiliation he experienced, because he was brought low from his place of pride and his high place, he found Jesus Christ while he was in prison. And he says that even though that was the worst experience of his life, it was in fact the best thing that ever happened to him or could have possibly happened to him. Again, this is the clear demonstration of the biblical principle that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Luke 1.52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Luke 4.11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4.6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see this reality, this truth, over and over again throughout the Bible, and we see it here in Daniel chapter 4. But we also see that there is an even, an even more of a great outcome that comes from this humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, just like in the situation of Chuck Colson. There is a proper outcome from the change that Nebuchadnezzar has experienced. This entire chapter, written in the words of King Nebuchadnezzar, is a demonstration, I believe, of a changed heart. Once Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, he confesses the great authority and kingship of Yahweh. He confesses that Jesus, that God is the one who sets men up, who puts kings in their position and who brings them low. That he is the one that has authority, not man, not himself, but God. We see a total change in the way he talks. From, from this is what I have done, I have set up this kingdom, I am great, I am mighty. To, as we see this doxology at the end of the chapter that God is great, that he is mighty, that he is sovereign. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. A low view of ourselves and a high view of God leads to proper worship and proper praise. And that's exactly what we see from King Nebuchadnezzar. We see a proper worship and praise of God here because he has now realized the situation. He has realized the magnitude of who God is and the greatness of God, and he has realized the reality of how low he is in comparison. This is the reality. This is what leads us to true worship. The same is true of us, that our worship should flow from a proper perspective of who we are and who God is. That's why I love the, the song that we sang that, that says, reveal the depths of, of what you've done, as we sang earlier. Because when we truly understand the depth of what it is that God has done for us, that He, who is above all things, who is high and lifted up, who has created the, the entire universe, who has created us, who who holds all things together. This is the God who has come down to this earth to save us from our sins, to die for us, to die for his enemies, to die for, for wretches like ourselves. And when we realize who he is and the greatness of him and realize how low we are, that leads to a deep and great worship. This is part of why uh, I, I love Reformed theology. I'm not about to take a soapbox here for why everyone should believe Reformed theology, but I am going to tell you why I believe and, and love Reformed theology, because Reformed theology says that God is great and that we are low. It says that salvation is a, a work of Him and Him alone, and that the only thing we have done as a part of salvation is sin to make it necessary. 
This leads us to a proper worship of God. The moment we begin to view ourselves as having some sort of of necessary agent in saving ourselves is the moment we completely wreck the proper view of God and the moment our worship will begin to cease to be what it should be because that's an improper view of who we are and who God is. The praise that Nebuchadnezzar offers sounds a lot like the praise that we read in Psalms 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. This is so true. That our God is great and He does as He wills. He doesn't do as we will, as we talked about last week. We don't pray and ask God for the things that we want, pray and ask God for the things that we need. And He says, oh, well, well they prayed. I guess I'll, I'll give them the, their wealth and, and give them money and, and make sure they never get sick. No, God does what He pleases and He does what He wills. And it's so great that Nebuchadnezzar, even though he is is recently converted in the faith, has a worship that is so right and so theological in verse 34 and 35. Let's read this one more time and see what he says. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is such a deeply theological piece of of doxology, of of worship here coming from King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think that, that it's something that we ought to learn from and something that we ought to, to practice as well. Because so often we tend to, to worship God in, in shallow ways. We tend to worship God in, in, in songs that are shallow. We tend to worship God in, in obedience that is shallow. We tend to worship God out of a, a poor view of His greatness. Because when we have a proper view of God's greatness and His glory, it will lead us to worship like Nebuchadnezzar's worship that is theological, worship that is rich, worship that is us desiring to understand Him more and proclaim that to Him and to the world around us. I want you to think, think about this. So, so I, I, I'm going to praise my wife. And if I'm going to praise Kaylee, I could say, ah, Kaylee's great. Man, I love Kaylee. Well, and she might say, okay, well, cool. What do you, what do you love about me? Well, you're just great. I mean, I, you're awesome, you know. Yeah, I, lo- I love you. Well, that's great, but what, what do you love about me? I mean, is there a particular reason you love me? <laughs> I just love you. I mean, it's, you're awesome, Kaylee. Kaylee is going to be a lot less pleased and and enjoy that a lot less than when I tell Kaylee, Kaylee, I love you because of your love for Christ. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because of your kindness and because of the way you treat me with with such respect and such love and and such grace, even when I don't deserve it. And and I love you because of those things, specific things. I don't just love you because, well, I just have these feelings for you. It's, It's so much more than that. And the same is true with God. He doesn't want us to just proclaim that we have feelings that lead us to to sing. He wants us to proclaim why it is that we love Him. We should be like Nebuchadnezzar and saying, God, I love you because you are great. You are sovereign. You do as you will. You are so much higher than we are. We are nothing in comparison. This is true worship. This is what we see through the Psalms. This is what we see through Ecclesiastes, the poetry that we see in, in Scripture. We don't see emotional, light, weak 
worship coming from, from Scripture, from the Psalms, from, from the epistles and, and the New Testament. We see deep, rich, theological worship. And I am a firm believer that that ought to inform how we worship. We ought to worship in ways that are rich, that are deep, not shallow in our worship. I'm not saying that emotions don't matter. I'm not saying that when we worship, we should be robots that are, are void of emotion. But I'm also saying that our emotions should not dictate our worship. Our theology should. What we believe about God should, di should dictate how we worship God. As we close, there, there are three applications for us from this passage in Daniel 4 that I want us to see. And the first is what we've already said, that there is a true biblical principle that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Just look at Christ in Philippians chapter 2. There's a, a pattern that we see from him that is universal throughout all of Scripture that before anyone is ever exalted and put in a high place as Christ was, who's seated above all things, we, he has to be humbled first. Jesus Christ came, humbled himself, and the Lord glorified him after that. It's a true biblical principle that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. The second is like unto it, exaltation comes only after humiliation. So the question is, are we going to humbly submit to our God? Are we going to humbly submit to the one who created us, who has authority over our lives, whether we feel like we are going to grant him that authority or not? He has it. Are we going to submit ourselves to that? Or are we, like so many, going to be humbled at the end of the age whenever God returns and says, you will bow? And finally, the third application is that humility and a right view of God, greatness in perspective, leads to a right and proper worship of God. And this comes not only in, our, in the songs we sing. This doesn't just come in, in, in with the way we sing as we are in these pews or or when we go to concerts or whatever, this is, this is e even in our prayer life. I, I think a, a great and right way to pray is to pray with scriptures in our hand. I think it's right and proper to open up to, to the book of Psalms or Proverbs or, or even to open up to, to uh, the, the prayers of the Old Testament prophets and say, God, this is my prayer. I cry out to you the same way that David does, the same way Solomon did. God, take these words that I, that I read in, in Scripture and make them my own. Lord, Lord, this is the way I feel about you. This is what I declare to be true. A right view of God and a right view of ourselves should lead us to a right and proper worship of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we fail so often, Lord, to view you in the right way. God, we are, are filled with pride we're filled with uh, self-righteousness. We are just, um, think of ourselves in, in such a, a messed up way, Lord. God, may you forgive us of that. Lord, may you cleanse us of our pride. Lord, we see the, 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 cause, the, the symptoms and, and all of the effects that our pride has on our lives, on those we love, on, on our worship of you. So God, we confess that to you. And Lord, we pray and ask that you, would, that you would work through your Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would lead us to worship you in a right manner. God, that as we see the, the truth that Nebuchadnezzar, who, who was so full of pride and, and exalted himself above all others, Lord,
when he was humble and when he, he, he saw who he was compared to who God is and how, how little he truly was, God, that that led him to a right and proper worship. And may that lead us as well. God, I pray that you would cure us of our pride. Lord, it's, it's, it's every day. It's all throughout everything we do. Cleanse us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name.